You're listening to The Pithy Chronicle. History with a bite. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we bring you history's dirtiest deeds dripping with sarcasm. Are you hungry yet? Welcome back, Pithy listeners. I'm Erica. And I'm Caroline. And this week, we have a great woman to look at. For right now, we're just looking at her adolescence and her first queenship, I guess. Well, she was queen twice. She was queen twice. So we are looking at Mary, Queen of Scots, who was queen of both France and Scotland separately. (laughs) Today, we're going to look at her birth and her time in France. But before we get started, I would love to direct you guys to all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. That's right. We're old school. Please get in touch with us. We still have a Facebook. I know. We're millennials. I'm sorry. You're not getting rid of my Facebook. Sorry. No. This military base runs off Facebook. Don't tell the government. (laughs) That being said, we would love for you to go on Apple Podcast, write us a review. We've had an influx of new listeners, which is awesome. Our downloads are going up every week, which is great. But the easiest way for people to find us is by having good reviews and good ratings. So if you wouldn't mind taking that 12 seconds to click the stars, five is preferable. (laughs) And then you can write something and it could be pithy, like great. We're not picky. We need pithy and we need positive. Pithy and positive. You heard it here. So let's dig in. As with most of my episodes, let me go ahead and preface that I'm going to do quite a bit of groundwork with her family tree because she might be one of the most royal from multiple lineages that we've had in a while. (laughs) The woman is royal. The blood is practically purple. (laughs) For better, for worse. (laughs) We are going to come back to this over and over for the next two episodes. What I'm coining now as granny politics. Huh? Who are your people? As we say in the deep south. Oh, you know what it okay. is. Oh, I do. It matters to them. It does. <laughs> the deep south does have quite a few British gentry crossovers. More than you would expect. Today, we are going to start with the Guise family. That's Mary's mother or the maternal line. Guise was strictly nouveau riche, which you would not think given our past two episodes. You'd think, oh, these people are firmly entrenched in power. The Guise always remind me of the Seymours. Oh, that is such a good English parallel. Thank Look you. At you the Tudors are my jam. They are. I would literally make them into a jelly and eat it on toast every day. So oh I don't even know what to do with that, except move on. Is that not how you do <laughs> Although incredibly rich, absolutely powerful in battle with a lot of military might, they were still new to the upper ranks of aristocracy prior to becoming dukes. They were mere counts, which is lower. The only one that's below that is Baron. Oh, no. Heaven forbid it is a super pearl clutcher. (laughs) The Duke of Guise was only established two generations prior to Mary's birth when Claude, her grandfather, came into service of Francis I of France, Catherine de' Medici's Mm father-in-law. Claude de Guise married a Princess du Song, or a Princess of the Blood, Antoinette de Bourbon a direct legitimate descendant of a king of France in the male line. Her father was a prince du song. His lineage is traced back to a king in the paternal line, which means that he had a mild claim to the throne. 719th in line for the throne. Still in line, dude. Basically, 
The Gies were upstarts who made a lot of money and continued to marry their way up the chain till they got a prince or a princess. And that makes Mary very royal and very rich. Exactly. What could be better? Honestly, I can't think of much. (laughs) Mary's grandfather, Claude, the OG Duke of Guise, not only secured an advantageous marriage for himself, but also his children. So we're going to look at his nursery like we did last week. Oh, fine. Marie, his firstborn, was married to James V, King of Scotland. Then we have Francis, who is in his own right a Duke of Guise, married to a princess. Renee, who ended up being an abbess. So she's like married to God. Just married to God. Charles, Archbishop of Reims, married to God. Claude was the Duke of Aumont. Louis I was the Cardinal of Guise. So again, married to God. Antoinette, abbess of Fermentier, married to God. Francis, Grand Prior of the Order of Malta, again, married to God. And René, the Marquis of Elbeuf. All that to say, you can't really get much higher than God. And not only are they married to God. They are the leaders of their religious community. Lots of sway. And that's a big deal at this time. It is. And you've got two dukes and a marquess. Pretty daggum good for that many children. That's true. This family was rich, newly connected, and powerful. And they were also incredibly religious. Bordering on Orthodox Catholic. It's a large part of their identity. Yeah. Now, Mary was actually a religious moderate. And yes, that's a trait she probably learned from Catherine. (laughs) However, her maternal family was anything but. Mm -hmm. Now, we have our little primer on Tudor genealogy. And y'all remember this guy called Henry VIII? Oh, yeah. Well, he's not an only child. No, he's not. (laughs) He had two sisters who were queen consorts of France, albeit briefly, and Scotland, Contentiously. Mm. The Queen of Scotland, Margaret Tudor, was married to James IV of Scotland, who had a freaking brood of illegitimate children that Margaret was obligated to look after. Both of them, weren't they? Yeah. She gave birth to the future James V of Scotland, Mary's father. Right. And the Stuarts had been in power in Scotland even before the old alliance was struck in 1295. The royal house of Stuart began when Walter the Stuart married Marjorie Bruce, Robert the Bruce's daughter. And we have in our Tudor tell-all from season two a really good breakdown of what the politics of Scotland were Mm -hmm. at the time of the Tudors. So check that out if you want more information after this episode. What we need to remember is England and Scotland are very much not simpatico at the time of Mary's birth. They were relying on the old alliance with France, but in no shocking turn of events, the alliance really only benefited France, and Scotland was frequently left holding the bag, (laughs) as they were during the rough wooing, which is where we kind of pick up with the Battle of Solway Moss. The rough wooing. And it is. It is a rough wooing. Never heard of that before. Following his break from the Roman Catholic Church, our guy, not our guy, or not our guy, Henry VIII of England asked his nephew, Hey, James, King of Scotland, why don't you come on with me on this wild ride of Protestantism? No. Not only did James ignore Henry's request, he also refused a meeting with Henry to even discuss the matter because I'm not getting excommunicated. That's, that's a dangerous line. He is way out of bounds, and James was like, uh-uh. James probably figured out he'd gone nuts. A teeny, teeny, tiny bit annoyed at being ignored, 
Henry dispatched an army into Scotland to sack and burn, oh, a few Scottish border towns. As one does. And in retaliation, King James sent an army of around 18,000 Scots to do the same to the English border region. Tip for tap. The local English commander subsequently amassed a force of about 3,000 Englishmen, and the two sides met on the 24th of November in 1542. (laughs) By numbers, this should have been a clean victory for the Scots. Quick and dirty. However, on sighting the tiny English force atop a hill, the ill-led Scots hesitated, fearing that it was a ruse, which I could see. Yeah, you'd think they're hiding in the background. But the English cavalry seized their chance and charged the Scottish ranks broke and attempted to retreat. Now trapped at the riverbank, so many people drowned attempting to cross the ford, and those that survived hid in the boggy heathland that gives the battle its name, Solway Moss. And about 1,200 were taken prisoner. What do you do with that many prisoners? Obviously, James was humiliated by this defeat. Especially since it was against his icky uncle. Yeah, he would be the ick uncle. The one you were so not ready to see at holiday functions. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we really forget that they were social pariahs on the European stage. Yeah. King James was humiliated, as he should be. Shame on you. But he died a few weeks later at the age of 30, leaving behind <gasps> a six-day-old Mary. That beats Catherine. Not by much, but it does. Wait, what did he die of? Humiliation? I've never heard of that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I was interested too. Like, did this man just get a battle wound and just succumb to it? Fine, whatever. No, no. No, that's not fitting of a monarch. No. James V was said to have died of a fever or a nervous collapse shortly after his army's defeat and was buried at Holyrood Abbey alongside his first wife, Madeline. He'd already outlived one wife at just 30. Mm-hmm. It's a rough time to be alive. Yeah. Or dead. Finally, we get to the woman of the hour who's literally being born at an incredibly tempestuous time. England and Scotland are actively in conflict with one another. She's six days old when she officially becomes the Queen of Scotland. Wow. Mary was born December 8, 1542 at Linlithgow Palace, Scotland to James V and his French second wife, Marie de Guise. She was born prematurely and was the only legitimate child of James to survive him. And boy, was this a busy freaking infant slash toddler. (laughs) The following year, on July 1st, we get the Treaties of Greenwich between Scotland and England. And these treaties included a marriage agreement between Mary and Edward, the son of Henry VIII. Mm. This was an attempt to gain control of Mary and weaken French influence in Scotland. Remember, they had that alliance. It's no surprise that the grieving French queen mother was uninterested in signing it, considering her connections at the French court, not to mention a freaking cardinal brother in her back yeah, pocket. going with the Protestant group would be very tough for the Guise lineage. Yeah. They had, what, nine siblings married to God? At least four. Catholicly? Yeah. I'm going to go with nine. So, said no to that. Same year, September 9th, she was crowned Queen of Scotland, just nine months old. The who, ceremony was... Who held on Wait for it, wait, wait for it. <laughs> the ceremony was conducted at the Chapel Royale of Stirling Castle by the Archbishop of St. Andrews, Scotland's most senior Catholic cleric. I know that this is a silly question, <laughs> but did they think that this nine-month-old 
could possibly handle any kind of queenship? Uh, who was actually in charge? Was it Guise? Because I'm surprised that they would be cool so, with that. So the Earl of Arryn right now was the in name only regent, but it was Marie de Guise, not even her family, but Marie de Guise, who held power mostly because she refused to be parted with Mary. That honestly was what solidified her political foothold. Did she just walk around holding this child in front of her? That's not far from the truth. You know, you do what you have to do to survive, I guess. If I was Marie de Guise, I would be quite frightened when my husband died and my six-day-old daughter, which is less useful Mm -hmm. in this day and age, I could see that that would be a very frightening and very precarious position. Yeah. So let's go back to this coronation. Three items of significance were used during the ceremony. The Earl of Arryn carried the crown, the Earl of Lennox held the scepter, and the Earl of Argyll carried the sword of state. The scepter was given to James IV in 1490s by Pope Alexander VI, or the Borgia Pope. And the sword was obtained from Pope Julius in 1507. The warrior pope. Yes. (laughs) The crown had been worn by Mary's father, James V, at her mother's coronation in 1540. So these three items are known collectively as the honors of Scotland and are still on display today. However, they were not used together at one location until this coronation. She needed as much legitimacy as they could possibly throw into the ceremony. Yeah. Of course, the crown was too big for her to wear. And instead... I'm so glad that you too were interested in how she wore a crown. I I mean, what do you do with a baby? Put her in it. Instead, Cardinal David Beaton held the crown over Mary's head. Traditionally, heralds would read aloud the entire royal genealogy, a list of titles and honors that could take up to 30 minutes minimum Minimum. to recite. However, a nine-month-old infant was really uninterested. She squawked and wailed throughout the entire ceremony. All of the normal proceedings just blown slap Anybody who thought that a nine-month-old was going to participate in an hours-long ceremony is an idiot. Yeah, queen or no queen, she still gets hungry every 30 seconds. Exactly. What was Marie de Guise or the wet nurse supposed to do? Pop a boob in there for the entire coronation? It could be done. Maybe not the most graceful thing in the world. Certainly less royal. So that's in September. We come to December. The child is not even a year old. We have the rough wooing. Because as we said, not really keen on marrying Edward. No. The Earl of Arran renounced the Treaties of Greenwich and Henry VIII attacked Scotland to force a marriage between Mary and Edward. The rough wooing, this continual pursuit of forcing a marriage between the two, Hmm. continued until 1551. I've never heard of this before. Obviously, they call it the rough wooing because the marriage is involved. It does bring up Fifty Shades of Grey moments. It does. Fifty Shades of Tudor. (coughs) I don't need Fifty Shades of Henry. Mm -mm. I do not. Next, we come to probably the happiest time in Mary's life. La Petite Roine, the little queen. We come back to her when she's just three years old. And this is where we start to see the sparks of religious unrest in Scotland. The support for the Protestant Reformation was really taking off. And Cardinal Beaton had the Protestant reformer, George Wishart, arrested and burnt at the stake. 
That is not a good way to go. In retaliation, Beaton was assassinated by Wishart's supporters. Oh. And thus, the spark was lit of the Scottish religious unrest. They made Wishart into a 4th of July sparkle. That one's not nice. <laughs> Next, we come to 1547, the death of Henry VIII, and women around the world sighed <sighs> in relief. Absolutely. It was not great for England, let's be honest, because it left England with a minority government. The Duke of Somerset acted as regent for Edward VI and continued the rough wooing. In September, the Scots were defeated at Pinky Clue. Mary was sent to Inchmahome Priory, Scotland's only lake, to explore a peace... <laughs> Fun fact! <laughs> yeah, Sorry. apparently lakes and locks, not the same. Well, one has a monster. Right. Several locks, one lake, a monastic <laughs> sanctuary. Inchmahome Priory is an island surrounded by water, and it is very, very defensible. And Mary found safety there at this point. Now, why a monastery need to be extremely defensible? I don't know. I don't. But here I, we are. I just now it needs to be defensive. Well, let me tell you, it was a great location for it. Excellent. In 1548, we have the Treaty of Haddington that strengthened Scotland's links with France. Henry II, as we know and dislike, <laughs> agreed to provide military support against England while Mary was promised in marriage to the Dauphin. Francis. And it makes sense that Mary's mother would have promoted this relationship. Yeah. Especially when she's being roughly wooed by Edward's exactly. controllers. In the same year in August, at the age of five, Mary was taken to France and it quickly proved to be a terribly long, terribly rough crossing. Mm -hmm. The majority of the crew suffered from violent seasickness. <laughs> All it seems except for the young queen. Instead, Mary is recorded to have carried herself with admirable dignity, having remained unaffected by the riotous seas. Legendary from infancy. But her Scottish retinue and entourage did not did not make a good impression at the French court. Oh. They were considered appallingly barbarous oh. and swiftly were gotten rid of. She was brought up as a Catholic French woman. French became her first language and she always called herself Marie Stuart. She loved dancing and hunting and she grew up delightfully charming, graceful, and attractive. Henry II thought her, quote, the most beautiful child he had ever seen, unquote. Wow. And Francis adored her. Francis I or the second? Francis II. Okay, yes, yes. I mean, loved her. A few miles from Saint-Germain, Mary arrived to take her place in the French royal nursery. She was now in the mm. care of Henry II and his formidable wife, Catherine de' Medici. Dun, dun, dun. Allegedly, Catherine de' Medici resented Mary as she was a queen regnant, giving her precedence over Catherine's daughters in the royal nursery. This was a contentious issue, especially mm -hmm. considering that the royal nursery was expanding and already included one daughter, Elizabeth, who was only a few years younger younger than Mary. Weirdly enough, <laughs> the issue was settled through the guidance of none other than Diane de Portier. <gasps> it was agreed that the young Mary would be second only to the Dauphin. She enjoyed a sibling-like relationship with the other royal children, sharing one of the best bedrooms with the Princess Elizabeth, aged three and a half. How weird to have 
the discussion of how you should be treated in the nursery. When you take the kids to preschool, they're not like, all right, everybody pull out your genealogies and so we can decide which kid to like the most. Mary first met Catherine de' Medici, her soon-to-be mother-in-law, at Saint-Germain. Like the majority of French courtiers, Catherine could not help but admire Mary's charming nature, exclaiming, our little Scottish queen has but to smile Mm. to turn all French heads, unquote. Mm. But despite acquiring a royal future daughter-in-law, Catherine was fiercely protective of her own children's inheritance and deeply resented the interference of the highly political and highly powerful de Guise family who aligned themselves naturally with the Queen of Scots. Yeah, because she was their meal ticket. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, they already had a meal ticket. She was just more. She was the cherry on top. On top of that cake. Yeah. Cherry Mary. And it was not long before the French king was referring to her as, quote, my very own daughter, whilst maintaining that she was, again, the most perfect child. We talked a little bit about this last week, but Henry II was actually a very paternal figure to his children, very differently than his father had been. Obviously. But, interestingly enough, Francis was really paternal to Catherine. Yep, yep. There's a common thread of opposite gender Mm -hmm. kind of taking over that role. I do have one slightly apocryphal story. I couldn't find a date on it. I assume that this is after probably the Victorians. Let's just blame the Victorians. How about that? I love doing that. After Mary had settled in, Catherine reportedly approached Mary on one occasion, who would have been five at this point. Five. To ask her why she failed to bow to the Queen of France. To this, Mary said, quote, why do you not bow to the Queen of Scots? (gasps) Rumor has it that Mary was under the impression that Diane de Poitier was really the king's wife. (gasps) Yeah. I mean, Mary would have seen how Henry treated Catherine de' Medici and how he treated Diane de Poitier. And Mm -hmm. before he died, Catherine was a womb. Yeah. Sometimes he relied on her for other things, but... Mostly kids. Well, And Diane was the queen of the court. I do want to take just a minute to point out, we've had some very different accounting here of what the relationship between Mary and Catherine was. For me, as I was doing the research, my thought is that a lot of people have ascribed Catherine's feelings about what was going on with the adult politics mm-hmm. to Mary. And I don't think that's Mm -hmm. the case. I think she was probably worried about who took precedence in the nursery. I'm positive she was because that was the only thing she had. Yeah. Like legitimately, these are the most important children. I am too sure that she resented Diane de Portier for getting involved in... In the nursery. And making this choice. Yeah, back the F off. But what I think is really telling what she is quoted as saying, our little Queen of Scots only has to smile and all of France follows. Mm -hmm. I think she genuinely liked Mary. I don't think she was this evil woman who was out to get her. Unkind to Mary because of the crappy politics that were going on on the adult level. Yeah. Now, we can have a different discussion when Mary comes into her majority, but I still maintain that. I think they had a good personal relationship, but I do see where it would have been contentious on a political level. And also, I think every parent wants their child to shine, and it sounds like perhaps Mary outshone her own daughter, Elizabeth. Well, at almost six freaking feet and red red hair i don't know that that was very difficult to do it was certainly flaming if not shiny yeah as for mary's education she was incredibly well educated latin 
Italian, Spanish, and some Greek, as well as French and Scots, or Gallic. Philosophy, rhetoric, Catholic catechisms were essential basis for learning the morals of rulership. I can imagine that the French court was pumping her with Catholic rhetoric because mm-hmm. they knew what was happening over in Scotland. Yeah. They saw the influence and the changes. But while she was incredibly well-educated, it doesn't seem that she was a natural academic mm. like her Tudor mm. cousins. I think she enjoyed learning, but I think she was more interested in other things. She adored all outdoor sports, singing, dancing, and playing musical instruments. And she sounds fun. Yeah, her talents in music and languages in particular, though, became a later cause for rivalry between her and her cousin, Elizabeth I. But that's next week's episode. It is important to note that she was predominantly educated to be a queen consort, not a queen regnant. And that will come back to bite her in the butt. Yeah, and it had nothing to do with her choice. It had zero to do with what she wanted. Now, of course, there were tensions between all the adults in the room, and it is unclear how much Mary was privy to these domestic squabbles. In September, two years after Mary's arrival, Marie de Guise came to France to visit her daughter. And in a touching scene, Mary, who had been practicing a speech of welcome, broke all the rules of etiquette and ran towards her mother. Yeah, personally, the visit was a success. Mother and daughter became remarkably close, a bond maintained through letters after Marie's departure the following year. Politically, however, Marie earned herself no friends at the French court. She appeared desperate for financial aid, repeatedly lobbying Henry for funds. That's awkward. Now, on another more scandalous breach of etiquette, Mary's governess, Lady Fleming, found herself pregnant by Henry II. (gasps) And, you know, this is France. We are a little more welcoming with our mistresses. A lot more welcoming with our mistresses. Well, Lady Fleming thought so too, Uh and thought it was advisable to declare loudly in her thick Scottish-accented French, which God knows I don't know what that would sound like other than delightful, but she says, quote, I have done all that I can, and God be thanked I am pregnant by the king, for which I count myself both honored unhappy. Wow, she's stupid. She was sent home in disgrace and replaced with a French governess. I do love that Henry went slumming it for a few weeks with the Scottish nanny. She's still a lady. Well, nothing more. She's a noble. It's not like she was some wet nurse. Nobody. True, but clearly. Anyway, Marie de Guise was also there for the arrival of the English envoy, Lord Northampton, in the summer of 1551. Ostensibly, he was there to convey the Order of the Garter to Henry as a sign of a diplomatic friendship. But, you know, on this sly, he took the opportunity once again to express the hope that Mary would see the heir of her ways and marry Edward VI instead of the Dauphin. Yeah, perhaps not. Like, and you know, poor Mary. She had the choice of a sickly boy or a sickly boy. Or a sickly boy. They were both Mm -hmm. never gonna survive the harsh realities of 16th century life. Now we skip ahead a little bit to 1553 when tensions broke out between the French and the Scots over Mary's position. Hmm. 
The princesses Elizabeth and Claude were considered old enough to leave the nursery and join their mother, Queen Catherine, at court. Hmm. The French side of things, including Mary's uncle, the Cardinal of Lorraine, thought that she would have her own royal household. The problem was that the Scottish crown could barely afford her maintenance as part of the French princess's household. Mm. But the French troops that Henry had sent to aid in Scotland, to Scotland the cost yeah. of them was enormous. Yeah. And resentment that they are maintaining Scotland's queen and the financial burden of sending troops, I mean, resentment was naturally building up. Yeah. And on this score, Mary complained that Mademoiselle de Poroy, the new French governess, was stirring up trouble between herself, her grandmother, and Queen Catherine. This quarrel led to an early manifestation of the severe gastric trouble that Mary suffered all her later life. Oh, I didn't know under that. Under stress. So your girl's got a nervous tummy. She's got IBS. Not IBS, just like when she gets anxious. IBS is actually a psychological... Really? Yes. It's almost completely anxiety-driven. Love that for all of us. (laughs) Meanwhile... 1553 saw the death of King Edward VI, and after an ill-fated rebellion that failed, <laughs> they did put Lady Jane on the throne, but... I don't think she's listed in the technical... She is I... listed technically. She was queen... For nine days. Nine days queen, but she was never crowned. Mary I, the product of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, was quickly to undo what she considered a blight of the Reformation and return England to the Catholic Church. Reasonable, because the Protestant religion basically ruined her life. Fair. She married her cousin, Philip of Spain, in the hopes of some Catholic babies. Years went by, no babies. And by 1557, her health, marriage, and reign were on the decline, and that was when the French finally eradicated all signs of English presence on the continent by recapturing Calais, Mm -hmm. which was a remarkable boon for Mary. Why? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> the charge to recapture Calais had been led by Mary's kinsman, uh. the Duke of Guise. His star, his rising star, had only enhanced her position at French court. It's said that he suffered 22 wounds, (gasps) but still pulled through. He was a bona fide war hero to these people. He had battle wounds and sexy scars. By the end of the year, as Mary turned 15, she was now decidedly of marriageable age, and the Guises were more popular than ever. The Venetian ambassador wrote this. We have a letter. A letter. We just got a letter. Oh my God. Don't judge me. I can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, The causes of hastening the marriage are apparently two. The first, to enable them to more surely to avail themselves of the forces of Scotland against the Kingdom of England for the next year. And next, for the gratification of the Duke and Cardinal of Guise, the said Queen's uncle, who by the hastening of this marriage choose to secure themselves against the matrimonial alliance which might be proposed to his most Christian majesty in some negotiation for peace, the entire establishment of their greatness having depend on this, for which the reason the constable by all means in his power continually sought to prevent it, unquote. 
What the hell does that mean? Basically that the Gizes were like, hey, we're popular right now. Let's get this on the road. Let's get this done. So that we can stay in power. And we're not going to get into it, but there were forces at the French court who did not want this marriage, who thought that it was too big of a financial burden and actively worked against it. It, it was a big financial burden. It was a big financial burden. And was the idea that if Mary and Francis had a child, he would rule both countries and- Just wait for shut it. Shut up, Caroline. Got it. France and Scotland negotiated the terms of the young couple's marriage. For while Mary would take the title of Dauphine as Francis's wife, it also opened the question of what Francis would be to Scotland. It was deemed appropriate that he be given the powers of the crown matrimonial by the Scottish government, which essentially made him king with the same authority as a regnant. So, yeah. yeah, the only courtesy they held back was shipping the crown to France for Francis to formally be crowned on his wedding day. The man couldn't hold his head up straight. He was so ill. So, you know, why add that burden? Yeah. Why pay the postage? Why pay the postage? <laughs> In the early months of the new year, Mary signed a secret treaty, though. Yeah. It stated that if she died before Francis, without children, Scotland would be handed over to France. Secondly, that Scotland's revenue would be the property of the French crown until it was reimbursed for the money that it had paid to help Scotland in its wars against England. And thirdly, she would renounce any arrangement that she might later make that would interfere with these terms. Essentially, if Francis died and she had to go back to Scotland, which, spoiler alert, mm. she couldn't renege on paying back this debt. That's gonna bite her in the butt. Yeah. And now, that pesky Tudor line and claim to the English throne. We know this backwards yes. and forwards. We've gone through Edward, we've gone through Jane, and we've gone through Mary. So that leaves Elizabeth. Elizabeth! Like we said earlier, the Tudors are currently just a shame to be seen at family reunions. We don't like them. They aren't really seem legitimate. They're nouveau riche. Elizabeth, of course, was very in question because there had been a lot of back and forth at the end of Henry's life as to whether or not she was legitimate. That discussion and the waffling back and forth continued through both her brother and sister's reigns. Oh, yeah. Mary is technically... She's a, in line. She's a better fit in a lot of ways for the powers that be at the time. Yeah. The Catholic Church was backing her. She had power. She had the French crown, the Scottish crown behind her. She was a good daggum candidate compared to the illegitimate daughter of, quote... The great whore Anne Boleyn. Did Mary Tudor ever give it thought to skip Elizabeth and go to Mary, Queen of Scots? I honestly, I don't think so. I feel like that would have come up in my research. I've never heard that, but I wonder now. And I think that Mary loved her sister more than that. I think so too. Despite I think everything. So too. And there was so much of that. We come now, finally, to the marriage to Francis. Mary and Francis married in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Oh, excellent. Mary was 15. Francis was 14, which is actually close in age. We don't normally see that. Yes. And they are married, quote, older than a lot of others. <laughs> um, you know, there's no 12-year-old, 10-year-old situation. They were married with spectacular pageantry and magnificence. 
the Duke of Guise was the master of ceremonies, which I didn't realize there was master of ceremonies at weddings, but okay. Is that like a wedding planner? Maybe. She wore a lavishly decorated white gown with slate bluey gray velvet on the train, Mm -hmm. which was carried by two flower girls. With her auburn hair and pale complexion, the effect, of course, was dazzling. Not to mention her six-foot frame. Yeah. If unconventional, because traditionally white was reserved for royal mourning in France. wonder why she chose that. I have no idea, but we do know that she also wore a diamond necklace and a golden coronet studded with sapphires, rubies, and emeralds. She was described by the courtier Pierre de Breton as a hundred times more beautiful than a goddess of heaven. Her person alone was worth a kingdom, unquote. The wedding was followed by a procession past excited crowds in the Paris streets to a grand banquet in the Palais de Justice with dancing far into the night. All right. I'm loving this party and the dress, despite, you know, knocking against tradition. But I I haven't heard much about them. I, I, I would like some details about their love life. Yes, of course. They were essentially childhood friends. Mary had done a good job of presenting herself in her youth as a friendly, safe confidant for the future king. Hmm. He repaid her kindness by falling deeply, madly in love with her. Though given his age, it was likely nothing more than a schoolboy crush. Hmm. Mary, of course, was a beautiful, feminine... Goddess. I mean, she just did everything right so far. Beautiful. Feminine could speak 10,000 languages and ride and play sports dance and, and dance play. and sing and play music. She excelled at courtly skills, hunting and hawking. As for what she felt for him, unfortunately, it's unclear. His physical frailty and limits were unlikely to inspire passion. But given their shared childhood, she probably did develop at least fraternal love for him. I can see that. So honestly, fraternal mm -hmm. love is better than most royal marriages receive. So, okay, you have to sleep with your brother once in a while, but at least you'll like him. (laughs) I I don't even know know where to go with that other than... (laughs) But that's true. That's what she would have felt like. We're siblings. We've grown up together. He's got a crush on me, but I think of him as my slightly annoying little brother who might love. Or what about friend zone? Can we give him at least a friend zone rather than brother? I mean, he was frail and sickly. So, okay. We're doing a lot of speculation here. Let's go back to the facts. Here are the facts. We have a partial journal entry where she talks about her wedding. And she she talks about the wedding night. Quote, All I can tell you is that I account myself one of the happiest women in the world, unquote. These words were written by the 15-year-old Mary of Scots on the morning of her wedding to the Dauphin of France. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure a lot of that was everything I've been working towards is coming to fruition. I get to wear a fabulous dress. Everyone's excited for me and the attention and the grandeur and all of that. That's a better start than almost any royal marriage we've covered thus far. But also that line to me says, she at least, if you were disgusted by someone you knew you were going to have to procreate with, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nothing was going to make that better. No, I don't think she was disgusted by him at all. Yeah, I definitely think 
that she understood the political implications and the security that this marriage would give her <laughs> and Scotland. And I mean, she's lucky to be marrying someone that she knows, that she likes, that they have a good relationship. That they have history. Think about Catherine and Henry. Yeah. Like, Catherine got there and was super excited. And then he was like, eh. oh, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. So, pithy listeners, you make of that what you will. Personally, I like to believe that they had a decent little minuscule romance. I don't need it to be love. I don't need it to be fabulous. I don't need it to be rain. But can I at least let the kids have fun? I'm still going with a brotherly, slightly incestuous and uncomfortable relationship. But that's fine. Yeah, but you love incest. I do. You love incest. I do. Anyway. I can't help it. It's so weird. It is so weird, and I love you for it. <laughs> In November of that same year... I'd like it to be known that I am an only child and have no siblings, so this is far less creepy for me than it might be for someone who does have a brother or a so sister. So weird. In November of that year, Mary Tudor dies, Bye-bye. and she was succeeded by her Protestant half-sister, Elizabeth. In desperate attempts to reinforce the strength of Mary as the alternative... Catholic. Catholic queen. It was ordered that the plate of Mary and Francis's household be shamelessly adorned with the heraldic arms of England alongside those of, obviously, France and Scotland. In the new year, the campaign intensified with official documents to foreign powers being headed with the declarations of Mary and Francis as King and Queen Dauphin of Scotland, England, and Ireland. <laughs> yeah. By the summer, the professions had become yet more provocative, with ushers crying out, Make way for the Queen of England! (laughs) as Mary entered the chapel. You know, that would be insulting to poor Mary. She's got a kingdom. Yeah! You don't need to insult my kingdom by saying it's not good enough and just take a different one. In time, this period would be one of the most recalled by William Cecil and his allies whenever they wanted to remind Elizabeth of the genuine threat that Mary posed to her security as queen. And I have a whole ass, not even a half ass, a whole ass opinion about William Cecil, which we'll get into next week. Oh, I don't know who he is, but I'm really pissed off at him. Can you tell that I don't like him? It's hard to understand because Elizabeth had that quote unquote golden age despite bankrupting England. But I think that we don't understand how precarious it was and how scared she was that everything would come crashing down. A hundred percent because like we said, she is the daughter of the great whore. And Mary represented legitimate Absolutely. And not that Mary would not be culpable or totally relinquished of blame, but at this point, let's remember, Henry is still calling the shots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be hard, even as a queen regnant, to stand up to a man who is a paternal figure. Who is a loving... A loving father to her and say, hey, I know I have this really good and really legitimate claim to the throne, but I don't think this is the nice thing to do. Right. Now on to 1559, when she officially becomes queen consort of France. Mm. In April of that year, England, France, and Spain signed the Treaty of Cateau Cambrai, bringing peace to most of Europe. Henry II was then fatally wounded in that famous jousting tournament in June, and it was held in celebration for the peace. It is so ironic that it just sent France into a spiral. Yeah. Eh. Francis became king, making Mary queen consort of France. Francis was crowned in the holy surroundings of Reims Cathedral on 21 September 1559. 
He was dressed in a blue velvet gown trimmed with ermine and gold fleur-de-lis. Mm. Mary watched on as her uncle Charles, the archbishop, anointed and crowned her husband during the time-honored ceremony. It is said to have lasted more than five hours. No. I thought that King Charles's coronation was too long. This is ridiculous. Five hours. Five hours is ridiculous. No wonder the sickly boy needed someone to help hold him up and hold the crown. Mm-hmm. The keeper of the royal aviaries released around 8,000 songbirds from amidst the choir as they mm. sang Te Deum, a visual expression of peace and hope for a new age. That's really cool. Did she get crowned? Was there any power for Mary? Was she... She was not formally crowned as a regnant of France and did not participate in the coronation because she was already queen regnant of Scotland. Just because you're already queen regnant of Scotland doesn't mean that you shouldn't be crowned alongside your husband. I want another shiny hat. I can wear two crowns. It's like a tiered cake effect. Yeah! And we could add England on top as that cherry. That's right. Should we need to. With the approval of his mother, the Dowager Queen Catherine, Mary's uncles immediately were confirmed as their chief advisors, Mm -hmm. although they Mm -hmm. were theoretically part of a grand council, ever wish Francis was to preside, blah, 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 blah. Queen Catherine was on there, but let's be real. Catherine was, like we said in mourning, and the Guises ran the show. They really did. Yeah. And it was a very Catholic show. It was. Others of the French nobility were incredibly unhappy with this arrangement. They felt it consolidated power with the Guises way too much. The nobility objected that Francis was underage and could not appoint counselors. They argued that the regency should be taken by his distant cousin, the oldest Prince du Song, the all-male descendant of Louis IX, with a right to the throne. Hmm. This prince was Antoine de Bourbon, who was King of Navarre in right of his wife, Jean III. King Antoine was Catholic, but his wife and his brother, Louis, the Prince of Condé, were both committed Huguenots. Yeah. That's quite the issue. This is the Jean d'Albert that eventually people will say Catherine murdered with those Oh, those nice gloves. gloves. Her little olive branch. The Guise faction argued successfully that 15 was the age of majority for French kings, and that even if it were not, the proper regent was not necessarily the King of Navarre, but could be Queen Catherine. Mm-hmm. The brothers tightened their hold on power and Mary's grandmother, Antoinette, and her three aunts by marriage were appointed as chief ladies. Man, she is surrounded. Yeah. Talk about insulation. Surrounded. And if you are surrounded and the only thing being said is someone sitting on your throne in England, this belongs to you. And well-educated or not, she was still a 16-year-old girl. And 16-year-old girls do not have the mental capacity or the emotional maturity to handle things like that often. It is an indoctrination. It is. It's an indoctrination that you are the God-chosen Queen of England. And you need to make sure that it goes to Catholicism. Because... Elsewise, you're not doing your duty to God and a heretic is on the throne. Not doing your duty to God and think about all those poor Englishmen and women who are being misled. Who need you to have be to bring them back in the back fold. back to the Catholic fold, yep. That's a lot of pressure for a young girl whose husband is, yeah. you know. Himself. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine supported the Guises partly because they were the opponents on the Montmorency and Diane de Poitiers and revenge on Diane was sweet. 
Mm-hmm. Sweet, mm-hmm. sweet, sweet to behold. Mary, too, was keen to expunge Diane from the royal circle. Interesting. And immediately requested that an inventory of the crown jewels be made and any items in Diane's keeping were to be sent to her. Isn't that interesting? Mom doesn't have those jewels. Mistress has those jewels. Mm-hmm. Now, I did read that Diane happily sent them back right away, no note needed, and she understood that that was going to happen. Shockingly, that didn't come up in my research. No, no one ever stands up for poor Diane. Make your bed and you lie in it. Especially when you make it in a very gross and pedophile-like way. Yeah, the grooming there just... (laughs) Let's shift for a moment, if you will. (laughs) Scotland was shifting ever more to the embrace of the Protestant faith. In fact, it was happening at an astounding rate, helped along by sermons delivered by the fervent preachers recently returned from exile. The most prominent of these was none other than hellfire and brimstone John Knox, who Mm -mm. ardently believed female rulership to be an insult to God. Oh, I have so many thoughts. Knox has a whole section next week, I assure you. He's the worst human possible. He's really awful. For someone who is a man of the cloth. But that doesn't mean anything at this day and age. It doesn't. Some of them were legitimately religious and were good people. Good people. And then some of them were trash. Like John Knox. Like John Knox. As regent, Marie de Guise worked tirelessly to keep Stuart authority afloat. Facing the revolting lords of the congregation, which are these preaching Genevan exiles, their grip was far too firm on the populace and her health was way too fragile. Mm. In October, the rebel lords, among whom was Mary's half-brother, James Mm. Stewart, overthrew Mary's (gasps) mother and installed themselves as leading authority over Scotland. Oh, I knew that half-brother was illegitimate, and I knew that when Mary arrives in Scotland post-Queen of France, that he is there to guide her. But I didn't realize that he had overthrown her mother. Yes. That is an awkward little moment in the family reunion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. boy, will we get to that. Okay. At the height of the crisis and suffering from obvious mental and physical exhaustion, Marie de Guise's health hung in the balance. Defying the advice of her doctor by insisting on mustering yet more troops, Marie succumbed to complications of lymphedema in June of 1560. The news of her death was to be kept from her daughter, now the Queen of France, for several weeks. Why? I think that there was a delay on the Scottish end because there was such unrest, but then the French, even though they were her uncles, wanted to get their game plan in place before they told Mary. That is gross. When Mary was eventually informed, she was devastated by the news. She had become close to her mother, particularly so during the constant presence and guidance of her mother's Guise relatives at the French court. England took this opportunity of constitutional crisis in Scotland to press Mm. Mary into accepting Elizabeth as England's queen. However, Mary found the request to renounce her claim to be insulting. Obviously. Obviously. Her mother is dead. This is such a crappy moment to do it. Don't don't be a dumbass. Life lessons from the Pithy Chroniclers. If we ran the show, it'd be much better. Mm. The Treaty of Edinburgh was a formal acknowledgement of the rebel Scottish Reformation Parliament, which had so recently deposed 
her mother. Not only was she supposed to say, yeah, Elizabeth, you, you keep on doing what you're doing, girl, and my brother can run Scotland while I'm still in France. No. Their timing was terrible. Why did they think this was going to work? They probably thought it was going to work because she would be in mourning and not as active in her own administration, not necessarily thinking about the future. Well, if they thought that the Guises were going to give up power, they're crazy. Well, that's true. And on November 16th of the same year, six months later, Francis passed out. Uh-oh. When he came to, he had a high fever and complained of extreme pain in his ear. And over a few days, Francis's health drastically improved. Oh. No big deal. Much better. Come December, he got ill again and fell into a coma. Three days later, he was announced dead. Yeah. We know Francis had been a sickly child from a very young age, and it was said that he struggled with his breathing, always used his mouth to do so instead of his nose, which made him have bad breath and snot. Oh my god, this poor girl. It's not attractive. As I said, I don't think she wanted to procreate with this dude. Just wait. Oh. People have theorized that he got an ear infection, it became dormant, then abscessed, and that's what caused his untimely death, that it had eaten away at his brain. <laughs> so sorry, I should have warned oh, you for that one. Oh god. Is that a thing? It is a thing, allegedly. Like, scientifically. The fact that it could happen is so freaky. Ugh. On Francis's death, Mary was bereft. She wrote, My heart keeps watch for one who's gone. So it does seem like he was probably gross, but it's clear that they had some sort of a relationship. I think so. Again, it is my opinion that it was more fraternal, but it doesn't matter if your brother had acne, was pimple-faced, and, and a mouth breather. You still love him. No, I'm, st- I'm still letting the kids have a little bit of fun. Erica just wants this romance. Okay. I'm not saying it was a great romance. I'm just saying that I think it was puppy love. I think it was that first blush of interest in the opposite sex. Hold on. How tall was Francis? He was short, but we don't have a feet and inches. Shorter than her. I mean, my God, have to be. She's almost six feet. That's a giant at that time. Huge at that time, but that's those Plantagenet genes. Mm -hmm. After adhering to the customary 40 days of official mourning for both her mother and her husband, Mary faced up to her options. She could either enjoy a comfortable life in France and possibly remarry a suitor of Catholic European royal stock, or she could make the bold move to return to her now Protestant nation, which she had left at the age of five as its Catholic queen. That would be so weird. Mary set forth in the next chapter of her life with a genuine desire and hope to gain the trust of her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, who she described as, quote, the nearest kinswoman that each other had, unquote. And she also was keen to cultivate a policy of religious tolerance in her homeland. A tolerance she might have gotten from Catherine de' Medici. And that, my friends, for this week, is that. Okay, I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica, and we are Piffily Yours.
This episode is brought to you by The Pithy Chronicle, LLC. The Pithy Chronicle is intended for education, entertainment, and non-commercial purposes. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. While we offer lots of sarcasm, this podcast does not offer any advice or services. Listening to this podcast may induce fits of laughter, unexpected distraction, or uncontrollable rage at the subjects. Hopefully not at us. We hope you learned something today. If not, so sorry. Please be advised we are not experts in the following fields. Medical, legal, financial, technological, thermonuclear engineering, submarine warfare, neuroscience, or cat husbandry. Thanks for listening to our little disclaimer. Just covering our history-loving asses. Bye!